Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about mastering cost-effective household budgeting and navigating behavioral finance. And we're going to be talking to Kara Maksud, who is the CEO of Money Habitudes, and she's also a financial advocate. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Um, We'd love to get to know you a bit better before we get the show started. So do you mind um, introducing yourself in a bit more detail? Sure. So I'm Karamek Sood. Um, I currently, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of Money Habitudes, um, which is the leading money personality assessment tool. And many people say to me, how did you wind up on that side of finance, right? I spent my early career as a Wall Street trader. Um, and after I started to have a family, I moved into nonprofit work. And what I recognized was that it didn't actually matter how much money people had or didn't have. They, Everyone has a belief, an association, an idea of what they think money will either do for them or what they should do with the money. And it really, really enlightened me to, to study further. So I finished my graduate degree at Kansas State University in financial therapy slash psychology and really to understand people's behaviors how they function with money, and really what implores them to do the things they do with money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, to to really look at now, um, what we do is is we really just help people figure out what their relationship is with money. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I I understand that you know not all not a lot of our behavior isn't really rational, and so that's a big problem with finance because. Um, we have all of these, um, you know, uh, theories on how we're supposed to use money, but we don't actually do that. Exactly. Well, right. Brain messaging for mm-hmm. every one logical message. We have five emotional messages that our brain, you know, automatically defaults to, um, we worry about, you know, fear, if we're hungry, if we're tired, if we're scared. So any of those things that come into play we don't even realize they're affecting our money decisions on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so I guess um, something that we need to, 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 you know, manage our finances better is understanding what those things are so that we can, I guess, account for them um, or hopefully override some of them maybe. Exactly. Or just be aware of them. So Mm -hmm. what do they always say? Don't go to a supermarket hungry because you buy, you know, a whole thing of food well, maybe you don't care. Maybe you'll use the food at a later date. But for those of us that maybe trying to stay on a budget, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, buying that those impulse buys because you're so hungry 
in the store, you're not shopping coupons. You're not looking at what the best bang for your buck is. You're just filling the cart because you're emotionally hungry, right? And that's driving your decision making. Mm. So just being aware of that kind of stuff can really be helpful in our bigger picture budgeting. Great, great. I can't wait to get into that in a bit more detail. Uh, but first, uh, we like to do a section called Have You Met Car, where we get to know you through some of your favorite things. So the sure. first thing that we'd like to learn is what is your favorite book? So, um, you know, this is going to sound like such a cliche, and it's actually a book I just read during school, but it was so helpful. It's called Nudge um, by Sunstein, Sunstein and Thaler. Um, and basically, it really talks about things that are happening in our everyday society that kind of guide us in certain directions. And it really makes you think about how overcomplicated some of our systems have become. Now, I recognize you and I are in two different countries. And, and what I can tell you is some of the systems I'm not familiar with the Australian systems, but some of the systems here in the U.S., we have complicated them, forcing people not always to make the best decision because we've made it more difficult for them to make the easier decision because it's an extra step or um, it, it's an extra thought process that they may have to do. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated that book because it really allowed me to kind of step back for a second. Mm, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's trying to make anyone else's life complicated, but I think that sometimes we overcomplicate things because, uh, you know, we think it's going to be easier, we think it's going to be better. But yeah, I definitely see where you're, where, um, how that book would change your perspective. Yeah, great book. Highly okay. recommend it. Great. Thank you. And what about a movie that you've enjoyed recently? I have to be honest with you, I'm not much of a movie watcher. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say the the most recent, as I mentioned earlier, I have five kids, so do a lot of animated movie. And we just recently watched again, Wreck-It Ralph. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen it, um, but that's one of my favorites. And recently when I saw it, I really, really appreciated, I love the character of Vanellope Von Sweets. And it's really because she's a, a go-getter, like figure it out you know, no frills, get it done kind of girl. And um, as I'm raising my kids, um, I just really appreciated watching it with them again um, because I was like, I hope they really take this, you know, with them um, so they just get stuff done mm -hmm. and they don't get caught in all the extras. So it kind of fits with my book, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if we'll see a theme with everything else. <laughs> Um, and do you listen to any podcasts? So actually, I just listened to, to three episodes of a podcast last night um, because I was working with one of our clients and he does a radio show, but then they record it and it becomes a podcast. He's actually in South Africa and he talks a lot about financial well-being and financial health. And I actually listened to these three episodes back to back because what he was discussing was... Um, financial inflection points and how there can be a financial inflection point. So let's say you go to the hospital and you know you broke your leg and you figure it out, but then you get home and you're getting better and all of a sudden you get that bill. 
and the bill comes and you realize what you have in savings is barely enough to cover, rent is due, right? And you panic. And all of a sudden, that one moment in time starts to compound over all these other things that can then be affected. And I guess because of the role that I work in currently, I really listen to this podcast because I'm really looking for more language and more ways to explain to practitioners, facilitators, to to be empathetic, but also to be able to give good advice that's not overwhelming and not judgmental when we meet someone who really needs help in a moment and not a financial plan. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And um, I think that what you're trying to do, which is, you know, come to people with practical solutions without judgment, uh, that's something that we're really trying to do as well, because um, I don't know about anyone else, but if I was shamed for my financial situation, I think I just put it under the rug and um, hope that it doesn't come back to bite me, which was only going to make the matters worse. A hundred percent. And not only does it make matters worse, but then you start to make more decisions that are usually not moving you in the right direction. Mm. And so that actually winds up infringing on more people. Mm -hmm. So we, I I like to, so so it was just funny that I happened to listen to that podcast last night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's great that there are lots of, lots more um, podcasts um, about lots of different topics to do with um, home management, um, but particularly finances, because, um, you know, we, we're trying to help. We're trying to get everyone um, to learn some new stuff. But I think there are so many, there's so many things that you can learn. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I would just add that I think a lot of the financial content that's been out for a very long time is more, you know, budget, 50, 20, 30 rule, you know, invest, save for yourself before you spend, right? It's all this around the numbers. And I Mm -hmm. think what people really need to kind of go beyond the numbers is figure out what your relationship is. Mm -hmm. Because whether you have money or not, you still have a relationship with money. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, some of those resources have been out for a while now. We know about them, Um, we, but we're not doing them. And um, yeah, that's, that's why we're having you here today, so we can figure out how we can actually, you know, um, help ourselves to, to to manage our money. Absolutely. Um, and um, our next uh, getting to know you question is: um, Do you have a role model? Do I have a role model? Um, you know, interestingly enough, I've had quite a few, and I I it's not one particular person that I think. I can say this is the exact person. What I can say is I was super fortunate to be surrounded by people that very well supported even my craziest ideas. Um, And interestingly enough, I would, I would, I, I appreciate that I also had the capacity to, when I went to someone and I looked for support or I looked for confidence. I wasn't, if I wasn't met with it, I was able to recognize that maybe that wasn't the right audience for me. So, um, so I appreciated that some of my, 
it's it's interesting when I think about role models. I actually think about people that disagree with me. And I like those people because I feel like the people that disagreed with me, but not poo-pooed me, right? The people that disagreed, but provided feedback or provided, hey, I know you, you know, I know you're capable of things, but you seem to be going in this direction. I'm not sure. Check yourself, whatnot. Those are the people that I really, I aspired to be because they were, instead of just agreeing or instead of just pacifying they spoke the truth they spoke what the truth that they believed mm-hmm. but they did it constructively respectively and and I really had a huge value for that mm, definitely I mean you, it's it's very difficult to grow and to learn if everyone's just telling you the same things over and over again whereas if someone can be like you know this is great but you know you need to change this you need to change that that's how you're actually going to grow and move forward exactly Exactly. So I don't know if there's a particular person. I think there's been a bunch of people. I mean, from, of course, my parents to work. I've been, knock on wood, very fortunate to find really great role models. And I've had three separate careers. So finding multiple people in mm-hmm. different places. Yeah, and I think it's also good to, to as you said, find multiple people to be your role models because no one's perfect. Um, everyone's got good qualities and bad qualities and just pick and choose the good qualities and um, yeah, you'll hopefully be a better person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And bad qualities sometimes aren't bad either, right? That's like true. sometimes meeting up against something that looks different, feels different or disagrees with you take whatever value might be there. Mm-hmm. I, I always say, I always love when someone doesn't like me initially because mm-hmm. it forces me to stay on my game. Mm, true, true. As a people pleaser though, I'm very much, <laughs> I don't like it when people don't like me. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> and um, have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Yes. So my, the first course I took when I started the financial therapy um, degree was called Money and Relationships. My professor for that class is, I'm the biggest fangirl. I absolutely love her, Dr. McCoy. Um, But the class was so fascinating because what we studied was family systems. And I don't know if you've spent any time studying family systems, but it really looks like the structure, it, it covers the structure of a family, right? How a family functions, whether it's dysfunctional or functional, but there's a system within a family. Everybody plays a role. Everybody's got, you know, you know, their positioning, there's boundaries, there's unspoken rules, there's all of this. And then you put money into this family. And so that class for me was so inspiring because it really set me down the path that I'm on now, of course. Um, but beyond that, what I recognized was, right, we, and I still, I ask this question and I will ask your listeners. So if anybody has a story, please come knock at my door. But I always want to hear the story of the family who says, we got the money and it brought us all together. That's never the story. The story is always the money my siblings and I fought over it or the money my parents were fighting over it and they got divorced or, you know, someone passes and there's arguments about who's going to own what. Like 
the money tends to drive people apart. Mm-hmm. And I'm always so fascinated by that mm-hmm. and and why that does that. Mm-hmm. Is it because, of, is it lack of conversation? Is it lack of belief? Is it lack of, there's never enough is never enough. I, I haven't figured it out, but I never get the story that the money's brought everybody together. I get mm-hmm. the story that the money is driven people apart. But Friendships, relationships, families across the board. But I mean, I mean, we often hear that money doesn't buy happiness, but I feel like a certain mo- you do need a certain amount of money to, to at least be happy. So would you, I mean, have you also seen maybe that a lack of money can also drive people apart or it's not quite the same? Um, I would say they're probably equal. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I come, I'm coming from this perspective where there is, let, and I'm not talking about large sums of money, just basic money or basic, you know, everybody's needs are being met, yet there seems to be jockeying that goes on or there's the sibling that always forgets to bring their wallet or there's the sibling who relies on mom and dad more and the other siblings are upset about it. Like there always seems to be, now when there's no money, and you do hear that quite often, when people say, oh, does your family fight about money? You will hear people say, well, there was none. So we don't fight about it because there isn't anything to fight about. What I would say though, is when the money does get there, if it does get there, then there's usually a dis because nobody's had a conversation about it, there is a disagreement about the way the money should be spent. The the statistics are that when couples divorce, the two main reasons they divorce is infidelity and money. So, you know, that's not me deciding that, that's statistics. Mm -hmm. And so are we not having conversations early enough before we get into these marriages? Have we not discussed what it means how we're going to work hard together. You know, it's interesting. People um, used to giggle because when I got married to my husband, I decided I was going to rewrite my vows. And one of the pieces of the vows, there's a, right, the traditional vows say for rich or poor. And I decided that I was poor just was not going to work for me. And so I said, for richer or richer, and I'm willing to work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted my husband to know that I don't think I'm above any job. So before we were going to be poor, if that meant I had to do six different jobs from dog walking to waitressing to working in an office to packing groceries, like it didn't matter. I would do whatever jobs needed to be done to make sure there were dollars coming in. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not going to guarantee that it's enough dollars, but I was I was making the statement that I was willing to work. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's important. It's important, I think, both to to state upfront what your values are, and um, for both parties to to state what your values are, um, and also to show that you know you are willing to work for it because um, you know it, it it would be terrible, I think, if you said um, I want to be richer or richer, and I'm going to be. Uh, stay at home, not going to do anything, going to spend all your money. <laughs> and to each for people that that that's their thing. Again, as long as to your point, as long mm-hmm. as you're honest, as long as both parties know what to expect, 
Mm-hmm. And you can agree on things, you know, with eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have an issue with with anything. Yeah. I think it's it's there's not enough conversation and there's not enough, you know, real deep dive into what are your values, what's important to you, and what what are you willing to do or not do to maintain? I know people who, when they do lose a job, they they have themselves in a certain bracket, whether it's where they are in their career, whether it's where they are dollars and cents. And if they can't replace that, they don't want to do anything else. Hmm. And for me, that that's, I don't, I've doubled as everything in my life. So for me, there's dollars are green, whether I get them working in XYZ or I get them working at ABC, they're still green dollars. They could be different dollar amounts, but there's still something coming. There's, for me, it's an input input versus output. Mm -hmm. And so as long as there's always input, you know, then I'm comfortable with some sort of output. Mm, Definitely, definitely. So I'm just going to stop the stop us just for a moment. How do I? You speak very loudly, um, which is good because it's much easier to turn you down than to turn you up. But um, I'm just wondering if we can just turn the volume. Okay. So how do you define household management? So if we're single household management, right? It's you managing, you know, everything you've got going on. And when I say everything, people love to look at the word budget. And put that in a, you know, there's these clear categories that people like to put in budget, right? Your rent, your utilities. But when you really think holistically about budget, which is your household management, is what it's what you need to function. Mm-hmm. So it, it's an array of things, right? And so when I think of household management to run your home smoothly, to run your life smoothly, right? We don't do that for free. So recognizing what that looks like on a whole, being honest with yourself about who you are, how you like to live. If you're not an early riser and you've got to be in an office every day, well, what would it cost you to live near your office, right? And so the cost of a commute could be expensive. So make sure you put that number into that management, right? Or it's more costly to live by the office. I better figure out how to be an early riser. So I think there's more details in household management than just what's in the refrigerator, have I made my bed, and did I pay my rent on time? Mm-hmm. Everything is interconnected and it's not, you can't really separate everything, you know. Um, cooking and food is part of the budget and the budget is part of your rent and also how you much you earn money or how much money you earn. Um, and so they're all connected. Exactly. A hundred percent. And understanding who you are. So we keep jumping back to food. If you're someone who works late and then by the time you're on your way home, you had this idea that you're going to buy groceries because you'll save money and you're going to cook. But you know on your way home from work, it's late, you're tired, you're hungry, cooking's not going to work. And then you wind up stopping and buying food. And now you're aggravated with yourself because you bought the groceries that are now going bad in your refrigerator. 
and you've purchased food from takeout, right? And so you've compounded a problem. You're not running your household smoothly because now you're annoyed with yourself and you've let something go to waste. Mm-hmm. In that situation, sorry. No. So just being honest with yourself instead mm-hmm. of setting expectations that are almost too hard to meet, be really honest with yourself. Hey, I get out of work late. I would really love to cook instead of feeling bad about it. Let's not feel bad about it. Let's just acknowledge so we can work with what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was, I was going to ask, what do we do about that? And I guess you've answered my question. Um, you be honest with yourself and you say, on, you know, Wednesday nights, I, I finish work late and um, I'm not going to cook. I'm going to d- get takeaway. Um, I think that's great advice. And I guess you, you or, include that in the budget. Absolutely. Or it, let's say Tuesdays, you know, you have an earlier day and you know you're going to cook. Cook double, mm-hmm. right? Because then you can prepare yourself for Wednesdays, right? I think I think often as humans, we live in the moment because we've got a lot going on and we're right we're this world that we live in currently it's 24 7 we're on our phones we've got a lot we don't always forward think and if we could just stop for a beat and kind of take in and for people that i I meet with people all the time and they'll say to me cara i really i don't know i say okay then let's give ourselves two weeks And just for two weeks, I just need you to journal, to tell me what it is. And then when you come back to me, you don't have to know. The journal will know. Mm -hmm. So we're going to give you total forgiveness. We're going to let you go through two weeks. Whatever happens, let it happen. Just write it down. So then going forward, now we can do a look back and decide or or have the formula of what really happens. Mm -hmm. So um, we've we've spoken a little bit about this already, but um, I do like to get some definitions down so that um, we we know where we're starting from. Um, so, like, what is budgeting in its barest essentials? Budgeting is really. I have a a client who always says it's a budgeting is having enough money for the month before the month runs out, right? And so. I find that cute and funny, um, but budgeting is really, in my in my definition of it, it's being aware of what the expenses are and knowing where you're, how you're going to manage those expenses. I think it's aggressive to say that you have enough and you're never going to spend what you've got. That would be a great budget. A good budget is we have money left over at the end. I think more realistically, that's not always what's happening. So my my definition of budget is, is as long as you're aware and you're preparing for it. So if you are using a credit card to kind of get through, you have a game plan of how you're going to pay some things off. If you are going to look at an apartment and it's $1,000 a month, you've actually looked at your paycheck and you figure out what your take home is. And you know that that doesn't exceed so much that you're upside down before you've even paid for utilities. Um, I'm not a big believer in in strict budgeting in terms of it's got to be in this 50, 20, 30 or you know, 90% this and 10% that. 
that's not, I think once you start putting those kind of constraints, we often feel, it's like the word diet. The minute you tell me we're taking away like everything I enjoy, I'm game over. So I think budget on a bigger, broader scale is really just being able to understand how you're going to balance the money. Mm -hmm. So I, I've never really, I've never really thought about budgeting or I have thought about budgeting. And then I was like, ah, I don't really want to do that. So, um, I think I've maybe like maybe once or twice I've sat down with my mom and we've looked at how much I was making and how much my bills are. And in my mind, that was what budgeting was. But to be frank, I don't really do that in my actual life. Like I get money every month from my work. I pay all my bills. And at the end of the month, if I look at my bank account and it's the same or a bit more than it was last month, then I'm happy. Is that sufficient or should I be thinking about it a bit more? You probably should be thinking about it a bit more because my my question to you would be, mm-hmm. if you wound up with an expense, let's go back to our example from earlier, you break your leg and you have to, now in Australia, maybe medical is different. So I, I maybe a car gets towed or a ticket mm-hmm. or something. Are you prepared if there was an emergency expense or an unexpected expense, would that deplete what's left over at the end of the month? And if it would, depending on what the expense could be, mm-hmm. how would you manage the following month? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me personally, um, I have enough saved up that my car was stolen recently. Um, I could probably buy a new car without, I would not like it, but I would have enough money left over that I wouldn't worry about the rest of my expenses. Okay, so you're not just budgeting mm-hmm. in your in your everyday life, mm-hmm. but you've managed then to save as well, which yeah. is part of that budget. So uh-huh. when we when you originally said it, right, you were like, I get this from work, I pay my bills. This piece that you've now managed to save, mm-hmm. that was part of your budget. Okay. And that is what gives you financial wellness or, you know, financial breathing room mm-hmm. that if your budget doesn't work one month, your monthly budget, remember, so now we're talking about a couple of different budgets. If your monthly budget happened to run over or there mm-hmm. was an expense, you're not trying to figure out how you're going to do it because you've got this nest egg or this emergency fund or the savings account to lean on. Uh-huh. So that is part of budgeting. That is definitely part of budgeting. Okay. So I'm, I'm not doing too bad then. No, you're, you're doing excellent. And I think, look, we don't, I think when people think about budgeting, they think about getting the spreadsheet and being real meticulous. And there are those people. And then there are people that have never thought about it. Like the whole idea just stinks and they have no idea. And they don't know what they make. They don't know what they're paying in taxes. They don't know what, like they've never added up all their expenses. They don't have a ballpark figure of what all these things cost. Mm-hmm. They just kind of live on a women of prayer. And so what you've done is a more broad stroke budget. And, mm-hmm. and that's not bad because it sounds like, you know, basic on a broad stroke around what things should cost. You know that you're going to have enough to cover it. And if this unexpected expense comes, you already know where you're going for it. Okay. And I think that's the biggest thing in the budget, knowing where things will come from. 
Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things should we be looking for? Like, you know, what expenses? In in just in a generic budget, you probably want to look at your rental or mortgage, depending on whether you rent or own utilities. Now, just go back for one second. Renting and owning are two very different animals, right? Because when you rent, it's somebody else owns that property and they've made a commitment to you that they're going to keep the water running and they're going to keep the roof safe and they're going to keep, you know, the property well-maintained. When you own, now those are your responsibilities. So again, two different budget numbers. You need the everyday monthly number, but then depending on which scenario you're in, right, you may need some extra money or budget some money putting away that if there's roof damage and you own the home, mm -hmm. you can fix that. Um, then you want to look at stuff like utilities, if it's not included in rent, if you own taxes, if you own a, I don't, again, I don't know in Australia, but in the US, when you own a home, you pay taxes for the property. Um, rental, it's included in your rent. Um, if you, things like food, commuting, um, people, some people care about different clothes for work. So if you're that person, again, your budget should be pertaining to you as a person. So yes, there's generic, you know, headings that we have, but then if you're a religious person, again, in our community, we have people that are called tithers. Do you do you have that in Australia? I I mean I I don't know anyone who does that, but as far as I understand, it's people who give like ten percent of their money to correct church to or a church. A religious correct. organization. Right, exactly. So mm. if you're a tither and you've been brought up in that culture, and that is something that is, you know, that's what you do. That needs to be in your budget because mm -hmm. you need to make sure that whatever work you're going to, whatever job you're accepting, you can afford to do everything that you're committing to. Mm -hmm. Okay. So where should you start? Should you start by getting your expenses and then aiming for a job, a certain career, or should you, you know, look at what you're making and then, you know, change your lifestyle to suit that? Well, I would highly recommend looking at jobs first, mm -hmm. right? Because we know what we like. On mm -hmm. a regular basis, any given day, you can sit down and you can say, it was hot outside. I liked to be in the air condition. I walked to work today and I like living in this neighborhood because I can walk to work. This is what the cost of these homes or apartments are. I enjoy going to Starbucks to grab a cup of coffee. I know it's this much money. So those are very known expenses. But if you have all these known expenses, but then you're like, oh, I really would love to be a crocheter who makes one beautiful tank top a year. How much can we sell that one tank top for a year? And I know I'm being silly, but if this is what you enjoy to make this one beautiful piece of art, and, and I'm not knocking art, but if the highest dollar value you could ever sell that piece of crocheted tank top for does not match 
the air condition and the Starbucks and the apartment that you want to live in, we may need to look at a different job. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so people will often say to me, oh, but this is my dream. And I say, I'm not here to be a dream crusher, but I don't know anybody who tells me it's their dream to always, always, always feel like they never have enough money. Yeah. So we know what different um, careers pay. That's known information. You can Google it. You can glass door it. You can look and you can find out if I want to be a chiropractor, if I want to be a doctor, if I want to be a grocery clerk, if I want to be a mechanic, you can look up jobs and you can find out what those jobs pay at different levels. Mm -hmm. And so... Now you've got what jobs pay, you've got what you, how you like to live. Okay, I really want this job. It's not going to pay enough to live this life. I'm willing to maybe move further away from the city. I'm willing to work, live out in the suburbs. I'm willing to get a roommate, right? Maybe there's concessions you're willing to make to take that job. And now the numbers work. But these are two known numbers so all this is is a mathematical equation at that point. Okay. But what about, you know, in between, say you want to be a doctor because you earn so much money, but, you know, before you become a doctor, you've got to study for, I don't know, six, 10 years. Um, you've got, to, and you've got to live in those in during that time. So how do you make that work? How do you get your Starbucks? How do you pay your air conditioning bills um, before you've got the job? So, you know, that is definitely something that, again, needs that plan. So remember before when we talked about kind of understanding what's coming ahead. So if you are choosing to, let's say, do a career that needs, you know, six, eight, 10 years of schooling, where is your support system? Have or are you taking out those loans to then manage yourself and you're looking at a payout? But again, don't do it blindly understand what the payout's going to look like on year one, year two, year three, when you're finally in the career and look back at the numbers. Are you going to be able to pay off this loan? If you're fortunate enough to have family members or someone who says, I will subsidize for you and that's great and I love those stories, except I implore people, ask the question, will there be any sort of like clawback or are you going to make me feel guilty if it takes me an extra year at school? Or what if I don't succeed? I decide, oh, just understand because people agree to help you. But then oftentimes there's a, there's a saying that says whoever's paying the bills makes the rules. And so when someone else starts footing the bills, they often feel like they have something to say. So when you go into those situations, really just have a plan. So it's, I don't deter anyone, but again, if you've worked out the numbers, if you've worked out what it's going to look like and you've got a payback going on, again, you can't do it for free. Mm -hmm. So if you're choosing to work that part-time job, if you're choosing to support yourself on loans, you can you can look at all the different options, um, but you would need one because life's not free. Maybe it does mean no Starbucks. As we said, there's concessions um, that you may make because you're like, I'm going to borrow the money. I don't need to be buying Starbucks with borrowed money, but that's up to you. I always say to everybody, again, with five kids in tow, 
don't take away my Starbucks. You can take a lot of things away. Don't take away my Starbucks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I consider coffee to be a necessity in life. Me too. (laughs) Um, So that's, you know, so you're saying that, you know, you need to know what you need to do. You need to know what your expenses are. You need to know what, um, you know, loans, payments you're going to be making. And you need to know what you will be making in the future. But it seems like a lot of a lot of different things to juggle, a lot of different, you know, plans. It seems a bit overwhelming. So, like, how do you start and how do you, like, how do you get your head around everything? Small. You start really small, right? Mm-hmm. It is overwhelming. And, again, remember that what we talked about earlier, with that emotional side of the brain, the want, the envisioning yourself as being this doctor or envisioning yourself as a lawyer or whatever it is as your profession, oftentimes that emotion drives and you start signing your life away or you start agreeing to things that you haven't worked through the numbers. So I tell everybody, start small and start with a task you like. Because if you start with something you like, it usually is a little bit easier than starting with the like dreaded task. So if like looking at loans isn't exciting to you because you're like gonna have a stomach ache. Well, let's look at the jobs that you're going for. So let's start with, I wanna be a eye doctor. There are statistics out there. Why don't we do some basic Google searches on how many eye doctors, you know, are needed in my region of the world, how many people get served and what is the average pay, right? Those are all small things Google's going to send you down 96 different paths. Some of the information might not even be perfect, but at least it'll start to, you know, pique your interest. Mm -hmm. And you will start to read one thing. And anything where you educate yourself or any big thing you tackle, it's cumulative. So once you know something, you don't ever unknow it. And so every little small thing you know it accumulates and then you know a lot. And then when you start to put those pieces together very logically, without emotion, without this big, you know, like Sharpay, I arrived plan, you do it small and incrementally, then you've kind of done the fine tooth combing yourself. And so that's gonna help you when something goes wrong because then you don't fall all the way back to square one you go back one step instead of back to the start. Okay. I hope that I hope that makes some sense um, in the way, Rachel, we've got, we're going to tackle this, what I want to do with my life and how, how much it costs me to run my life. Again, start small, start with one thing. I mm-hmm. love living in this apartment. I never want to give up this apartment. You know, what does it cost to live here? I have a roommate right now. So it cost me 50%, but I know in a year he or she is going to leave and I would like to stay here. Mm -hmm. What do I need? You know what I mean? Like, again, start small. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. So, you know, um, if, you know, rent goes up every year and so you can say, well, I know that this is how much I spend and this is how much rent is and I know this is how much I'm making and then you can because you already know all of the information, you can say, well, because my rent went up by this much, I can 
you know, work an extra hour at work every week, or I can um, give up this one thing that I don't care about as much as my apartment. That's the kind of thing that you're saying. But what ha what happens though? So in Australia at the moment, um, we're having this rental crisis where rent's going up by a lot of money, you know, some places $100, $150 um, extra per week. Um, and I think the thing is, is that, you know, three years ago during COVID, no one expected that um, because rent was going down, actually. So how do you how do you plan for those types of, you know, quite unexpected things that are really very far out of your control? So, you know, again, where where we've got that budget money where we're, we're making that cushion or savings or right. So at least you can buy yourself some time, right? Mm -hmm. So if your rent, you're, you weren't expecting it to go up, all of a sudden you get served a notice and it's going to go up. But again, you should be aware of this. Like you should, again, constantly be, you know, just aware of your surroundings, listening to news, listening to neighbors, you know, just so you're prepared for these things so you can start figuring out what the game plan may need to be. But if that really is making you feel like this is uncontrollable, like I can't, I can stomach this one increase, but if this happens again, if this like, it's going to constantly price me out, then we're back to the drawing board of what, what does feel like something we can control, which is often the reason why people like to home buy because then they're, it's, they own it. Nobody can tell them it's going up or down. Now, home buying prices are also expensive, mm -hmm. right? So it, how do you do that? People will say to me, how would I save for a home if I'm paying rent and I'm barely able to afford? So again, nothing comes without decisions and opportunities. And you sometimes you have to give up I think we like to all think we can have everything we want, when we want it, how we want it. And if life was like that, you and I wouldn't be on this podcast, right? But the word budget wouldn't even be a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth is, sometimes we have to take a step back to then go two steps forward. And so if that means, hey, next year or the next two or three years, I'm going to go find roommates and I'm going to live so I can cut my expenses, so I can save money to be able to go buy something of my own or I'm going to move further away from the more expensive neighborhood because I need to save some money so I can then be able to do more in the future, right? And those are concessions. Sometimes it means having to go find that second job. Sometimes it means going into a different profession Right. And so I've had people come to me and say, um, for instance, a dental assistant makes X amount of money. They do pretty good. But if you go back to dental school and become the dentist, the you're going to have to put that time and energy and money into school. And oftentimes it's, you know, it's exhausting. So you may not be able to work, but the dollars that you're going to make after and, and I don't know about in Australia, but here dentists are in such high demand that there's there's job openings. You're not coming out and there's nobody that's going to hire you. Mm. So again, you may have to take a step back, which you know, you're going to leave the workforce, go back to school, spend money 
that you may not have. You may have to do on borrowed time with this thought of making more at a later date. But again, as long as the plan is in place, this is how I'm going to pay it back. This is what I know I can go make. And you didn't emotionally make it up in your head. You've mm-hmm. done the research. That's that's the suggestion. But the rental crisis is really, I mean, I think what we're seeing, at least here, starting to see people like socially, um, like social living, where multiple people come together and, and they live in, like they take over a home or where they all have their own spaces, but they're sh- all the sh- expenses are shared because the cost of living, people can't afford it mm. alone. Um, and people are partnering, at least here in the US, as they were back 20, 30, 50 years ago. So remember, partnering, as much as people have whatever they want to say about it, you do have two people then that are contributing to mm. one household. When you go at it alone, it is exponentially more expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got one person in the room and it's being heated, that's one person paying the heating bill. If you've got two people in the room <laughs> and it's being heated, you've got two people who can pay that bill. Um, exactly. And I guess you've also got that extra security as well because you've both presumably got jobs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, you've both got jobs. And hopefully you... Or in a situation where, again, if the communication is good and right, you're, you're, I don't want to say hedging yourself, but God forbid one of you, right, you've got this person that you can at least rely on so it doesn't all fall apart. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that we've um, spoken a little bit uh, before about what behavioral finance is, but do you mind explaining a little bit more about what it is? Absolutely. So behavioral finance is really our behaviors, our habits, our attitudes, our beliefs around money. And just so you can kind of understand, it's not a one size fits all in that what we need to recognize is culturally, religiously, how like the environment, all of these different factors play into our own behaviors around money. Mm-hmm. So behavioral finance doesn't look the same from one human to the next. Okay. But are there some general principles that we can, you know, um, I mean, I guess, well, we can maybe pick one or two per person or something, but are there some general principles that we can know so we can try and look out for them and try to apply them to our own lives? Absolutely. And and general, in, in the textbook definitions of behavioral finance, you've got things um, for, there's like different biases, right? And so one of them, right, would be like sunken costs. And, and we all do this as humans where we've already invested in something and we should just like a gym membership, right? That's a great one. You own a gym membership, you aren't using the gym, the thought of canceling the gym membership or people do this right with apps, Netflix, Spotify, all different things. You you own it. You haven't used it. The thought of canceling it reminds you that you haven't used it. And so you're like, I'm not going to cancel it because I'm going to use it. And then I'm going to get my money's worth. So you continue to pay more money for something that you haven't used. And so that's like a sunken cost where you're already like, you know, doing something. 
but your behavior, right? That's that behavioral finance piece of it. Your behavior is you keep up this behavior. You stick with the habit of continuing to pay for something that you're not using. Yes. Um, I haven't, I haven't stuck into that with the gym membership just because I really hated the gym. <laughs> but I know that with some of my subscriptions, um, I really need to be canceling them. So, <laughs> so what are some other ones, you know, other than bias? Um, you know, uh, what are some other examples? So, I mean, other examples could be, um, you know, just behaviors in expectations. Um, this is one that isn't so much in the textbook, but more about social cues, like social currency or right where we start to do what other people are doing and and we put our money behind that without really thinking about how that's really benefiting us. So it could be keeping up with the Joneses. It could be, you know, buying certain name brands or stuff that that creates a feeling of fitting in or having us, you know, look like we're part of a group or I'm going to buy this brand name shirt because it's going to make me cool. Mm-hmm. If you're not cool with or without the brand name shirt, you're not cool, right? And so do these be we have these behaviors but they're driven with our money, mm-hmm. right? And so those are behaviors that that come into play mm-hmm. um, that we oftentimes don't even realize that we're that we're doing, and it's just habitual. Mm-hmm. So how can we get out of these habits? Well, again, back to what we said before, right? But really being honest with ourselves. And mm-hmm. so my favorite one is shoes, right? Because. Shoes are a natural constraint. And when I say that, I say it because how many people own more than two pairs of shoes? A lot. Yet we only have two feet. And I go, people say, Kara, why do you even say two pairs of shoes? You can only wear one pair of shoes. And I'm like a 90s kid and it was a big deal to wear two different colored shoes. So you'd get two different Nikes, they'd be two different colors and you'd wear them both. So I'll give you the benefit of the doubt of having two separate pairs of shoes, but you only have two feet. So Mm -hmm. if you own a hundred pairs of shoes in your closet, your dollars have been spent on depreciating assets. And I'm not here to like shame anybody for buying shoes. That's not it. I just implore people to really look at what they have And is it benefiting them? Because if you do have that number of shoes, even 10 shoes, 20 shoes, and you've ever been in a moment where you're like, I really could use an additional 20 bucks for this or for that, then what are we doing with all these shoes? We could have been using that money very differently. Now, if you're renting those shoes out or you have figured out a way that they're, you know, some, I don't know, collector's item, that's a different story. But for the most part, right? And we do this with a lot of things. We do it with shoes. People do it with cars. People do it with t-shirts. People do it with jeans. People do it with kitchen gadgets. People do it with, I mean, think about the amount of electronics we buy these days, right? Like we, we 
are usually constrained with how many of things we can use, yet we always seem to have more than what we can use, yet most people are always complaining that they don't have enough money. Mm -hmm. I can see that with my books. I have a lot of books. Um, and I mean, realistically, am I going to read them again? Probably not. Right. In my defense. So you could have went to the library. In my defense, most of them are secondhand. Okay. So, so they're not too expensive. And again, I'm not here to take away anybody's enjoyment of something they love or something they enjoy, but it's the overindulgences. Again, the society we live in with stuff like social media where we're constantly scrolling and we're constantly being given cues to buy things, right? That That's behavioral, right? That shop now, shop now, shop now. If you're someone that recognizes you can't help yourself, you click, 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 disable the click button on your phone or put some screen time or you need to protect yourself because nobody else will. And when I mean protect yourself, I mean protect your money, protect your assets, protect your ability to generate and grow wealth because the marketers, the the people that are trying to sell us stuff, they're not in the business of benefiting your pocket. They're in the business of benefiting their pocket. Mm. I, I did read somewhere or I think someone said to me, um, it's so easy now to buy things on your phone. So if you just don't put your um, card details in your phone, so you have yep. to get up, go to your bag, get your wallet to put in the card number to buy something, it's going to dissuade you from buying a lot of things. Of course. And it'll be, you know, those natural deterrents. Like if we can make those small deterrents, it actually can be a huge, huge win. Because the remember, back to our original chat about those emotions, those buys are impulse, right? They're, you didn't know you needed a new, you know, overnight bag. You have three others in your closet. But when they show you this one on Instagram that comes in 19 colors and it folds down to this cute little pouch and then it can open and it's got 19 pockets, all of a sudden you envision yourself walking through your next vacation with this bag. You don't even have a next vacation book. Right. But all of a sudden you're in the moment mm -hmm. and you're buying the bag. Yeah. Yeah. And so the just... odds of you returning that bag are slim to none. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what that in behavioral finance, what what that is then is endowment bias, because now you own something. And so what do we know about endowment is once it's mine, I feel differently about it than before it was mine. And so when you go to return something, even though you may decide, I don't need this, I don't want it, this thought of returning it is like a loss because I now have to give something up. Mm -hmm. Even though you didn't want it, you didn't need it, you don't, right? Like, but this is psychologically what's happening to us. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes, I have a problem where I personify everything. So if I have to return something, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry to the shoes. Oh, uh, you know, I can't, they don't, you don't fit me, but you know, I, I hope you have a good life somewhere else. As long as you, as long as you get them back to yeah. where they had to go, you're good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what's a practice you do to manage your household's finances? 
So I'm a big mint user. Do you have mint in Australia? Like, like the herb? Like the herb, yeah. But it's um, it's by Intuit, which is like an accounting software. Okay, and, I did not And Mint is is a is a free app, and you can connect all of your uh, banks and credit cards and whatnot. Um, some people like it, some people don't. Some people feel like they know too much information. Big Brother, blah blah blah. I tend to love Mint because I am very much someone. First of all, I, as I mentioned, I have five kids, so we're in constant. It could be a lot of $3 charges, but it's a lot of, right? Because there's seven people that we're managing. Mm -hmm. So I can't sit down at the end of a month and know everything I did or know if I, you know, if something's a fraudulent charge or something didn't get returned or something like that. I really need to do it daily. And so I am constantly in Mint at least maybe 20 minutes a day, almost the way you would do an exercise and just kind of going through very top line, do I know all the transactions that have happened? It also makes me very aware of kind of, if I've gotten away from, as you were talking about your broad stroke budgeting, I'm not great either about like, these are my budgets for this, this and this. I know again, broad stroke, we go out to dinner three or four times a month, blah, 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 we're going to spend X amount of money, you know, but if I'm going through and it just happened to be a week that I got busy at work and, the, you know, I didn't cook and all of a sudden we went out three nights in a row and I've now noticed by Friday that we pretty much ate up what my normal monthly budget is and we've done a good portion of it that week, it gives me like a quick get back and check and I got to plan better for next week. So I don't let things get so far away from me that I can't get them back under control, right? And that's where I find the hardest. When things get too far away from me, I find it very hard. They always say going to the gym and working out is hard. But once you lose the weight, once you get in shape, maintenance is the most important because if you get out of shape again, it's so hard to get back in shape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I consider my minting like going to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's it's maintenance. Exactly. Okay, so you're saying that, you know, you spend, uh, so you use mint to kind of keep all of your finances, all the different, I guess, credit cards and everything in one place so that you can keep an eye on all of the different purchases um, really easily rather than, you know, having to look at one bank account and a different bank account and then trying to figure out what all of that means. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and again, all the expenses, who's, what money's coming, you know, if we're waiting for something, again, I'm doing it. And we do a big end of the year cleanup. Mm -hmm. But again, it also allows me to know that nothing has gotten too far away from me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes um, after a year, um, you know, you could say, you know, maybe your your brother said, oh, could I borrow a thousand dollars and I'll pay you back. And then um, after a year, you don't remember those types of things. Um, and so you might look at your bank account and say, oh, where'd this thousand dollars go? I can't remember what happened. Um, whereas if you, you know, do it weekly or you do it every day, then you'll know you're going to remember what happened there. Yep, absolutely. Um, and are there any challenges um, to do this? I mean, I think... Some people really get anxiety at looking at their money. So 
you know, if you are one of those people, I know people that are like, I can never look at the finances every day. I'd be sick to my stomach, right? And so again, being aware of who you are and you can't not look at the finances ever. That is just, it's not. If you know how to spend money, then you have to know how it's getting into your bank account. You have to know how it works. Like, I, I, I guess I, as an individual, get frustrated with people that are just like, the money's not for me. I see relationships when they come together. Usually, and this is not, this is very common, that one person in the relationship becomes what we would call the CFO of the family or of the coupleship. And I'm not, I'm not here to dispute that, but we, you can't never not know. God forbid of a death, God forbid of a breakup, God forbid of a divorce, anything can happen. You need to know what's going on because mm-hmm. again, we can't get anywhere without money. Mm-hmm. So just being aware. So the challenges are once you relinquish control, that can be a huge issue. If you really are just uncomfortable with money, then you have to make some commitment to yourself to agree to be uncomfortable with whatever it is that you're going to put aside, work through it and just, you know, bite your tongue and and get through it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not doing it is not an option. Yep. Okay. I think I need to go home and um, have a look at my finances, even though I've been (laughs) putting it off. Uh, so we also have some questions from the audience today. Um, Great. Yeah. So um, our first question is, how can I identify and prioritize essential expenses versus discretionary spending in my household budget? So say that again. So it's essential and discretionary. So we're talking so, about needs and wants. Yeah. So how do I identify and pr- prioritize like the needs and wants? So again, Different needs and wants are going to look different for different people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say that, and I'm going to give you a silly example, but it's it's one of the ones that, again, I'm a girl from Brooklyn, so it, it's going to make sense in a second. So some people would say like hair products or some sort of like stuff that you would buy the extras at a drugstore, right? Maybe a want. You don't need fancy hair product. But if you're a girl with like super curly hair that's frizzy and often if you don't have some sort of a teaming product, your hair looks unruly and it might not look professional. And if you have a very, let's say you work in a law office and you work in a very professional setting, right? You're uncomfortable going to work like that. So the hair product that you may use may be a $25 product. And there may be people that come along and say, that's a want. That is not a need. And for you, it's not a want. It is a necessity. So again, when you look at your budget and you look at what's essential, what's discretionary, you know, it's, it's again, going to pertain to you personally, things like food, things like rent, things like, or or mortgage, a car, transportation, insurance, all of these things. Now, they're essential, but they have variations. So when you tell me it's essential that I live in a home, but do you need to live in the penthouse, 
right? Like, I think we, we have to dial up and dial back where we can and what will work for us, um, around what we're, what we're really making, um, what we want to be spending. And I would go off, you know, just a little bit further to say, really value how much joy things are bringing you. So when you look at, you need to live somewhere. You need a roof over your head. You need warm water to take a shower. If you've picked an apartment because you love it so much, but it's got you working a second job to afford it, then is it really worth it? Because how much time are you spending in that apartment? And so if you can live somewhere less expensive that, yes, you might like less, but now you don't have to work a second job and you can have some of your time back, could you find something that's equally enjoyable, a park, a gym, something you really love, that now you can have both? So I would say don't get locked into any one thing being a need or a want. Yes, we have our basic needs. Basic needs are food, water, shelter, but but they we have a many variations in those categories. So you can have a need that then has a subcategory of a want on top of it. And mm-hmm. we need to separate those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Like I need coffee, but I don't need the expensive coffee from the really nice cafe down the street from me. Right. You might like that one. Yeah. And again, I always, you know, I say to people, don't, don't, don't cut yourself off from it fully. So if you really love that coffee at the end of the road, and yes, you needing coffee is not, that's not like a negotiable, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're like, I'm going to drink the office coffee because it's free, or I'm going to brew a pot at home and I'm going to take it with me. But I really love that coffee down the block when that's the one that like I look forward to then find a time to reward yourself. Find, you know, a moment that you're like, I'm going to go do that. It's going to become a ritual. And what you will do is you will make that cup of coffee, even if it's six bucks, it will be exponentially worth more because you've now created it into this ritual and this, you know, you really valued it and you created it as a reward for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But don't cut it out completely. Don't deprive yourself because the minute you deprive, we actually find that we get ourselves in more financial issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you said before, it's a bit like a diet, I think, where, you know, you start depriving yourself and then you really, really want something and then you go go overboard and then you really, you you have too much of something. Exactly. 100%. Or it's better just to have one of the things and, you know, (laughs) then you'd be fine. Exactly. Exactly. And that sort of, um, I think, fits into a bit into our our second audience question, um, which is, um, do you have any practical tips for reducing recurring household expenses, such as utilities, groceries, and insurance? So utilities are hard because, you know, they're, it's the utility company. And I feel like they're a monopoly no matter where you go. Groceries, I actually, I have a great tip for groceries. And that is really maximizing, like figure out what your go-tos are, figure out what you make or figure out how much you use. I think waste is a huge one that we waste, you know, that we waste 
we waste money on waste, right? So I'm not a huge fan. I'm, I'm also too big of a family, but of those like meal kits that come. But the beauty of a meal kit is you didn't have to buy. So uh, I don't know how much you cook, but if you've ever gone and like decided you were going to make a new recipe and it has like five spices in it, and then you get to the grocery store and they don't sell a pinch of each spice, which is all you need. They sell you these little bottles and each bottle is like $6. And so unless you're committing to making this recipe every week for the next year, you're not going to make it through all these spice bottles. And so now you've spent $30 on spices that who knows when you're going to use them again. And so those meal kits, the beauty of them, they come with every little thing you need and you've got no waste. Mm -hmm. And so that I really, really try to always tell people with groceries, there's always, always, always a way to get that cost down. Mm. And there's always a way if you can plan more forward, if you can look at the things you use often so you can buy them in bigger bulk, right? Like those are the things that really will, you'll see, because food is expensive. And that, and again, the takeout is the killer because that last minute purchase is the one that, you know, really sets like you've budgeted here and now you're over there. Um, insurance, again, I don't know about Australia here in the US, there's different plans you can go on. Um, you can also pay up front and get a discount or you can do a like safe driving classes, stuff like that. So I always say if there's programs like that, use them because they're dollars into your pocket. But, you know, the ones you can control like food, like transportation, like gas, you know, depending on how much you're using your car or your vehicle or stuff like that. Those are ones that if you can, again, think forward, plan ahead, you can often cut expenses without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely with things like cars and things, if you can carpool, if you can, you know, walk, um, those are definitely going to save you a bit of money there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for that advice. You're welcome. Um, so we're going to move on to the open mic section. So that's where you get to talk about something that you're passionate about and it can be related to our topic today, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, what did you have in mind? So it is related to our topic and, mm -hmm. you know, as we're having this conversation and you've made a mention, right, I've got to go home and I've got to look at my budget. Um, what, what I always love to talk about and really just, you know, kind of put in everybody's minds is especially the parents in the room or anyone who's working with the next generation, have the conversation sooner than later. We've, our habits, according to the American Psychological Association, our beliefs and our habits have developed by the age of seven. And our beliefs around money have developed by the age of seven. And so you already have things you like as a kid. You already know, I mean, I have one of my kids who happens to love red meat. And that's great. And when we go out to a restaurant, the first thing she's looking for is like lamb chops or a porterhouse steak. And I'm like, you need to be eating chicken because it is a third of the price of lamb chops. Right. And so by, and, and some people would say, Karen, you're so mean. Why are you, you know, telling your kid this? We're out to dinner. Just let her eat. Right. Because she should be aware that that's what she enjoys, 
But that doesn't come for free. And as she looks at work, she shouldn't be looking at jobs that don't pay lamb chop salary because she likes to eat lamb chops. And at some point, I'm not footing that bill anymore. And I think we don't do a good job in general at running the correlation for people between the things that they enjoy and the cost that it takes to enjoy that. Mm -hmm. And so I often just say, let's have the conversation. You like to go out for ice cream every night when you're 10 years old, 11 years old. What is the cost of that versus buying a pint of ice cream and we have it in the house? So is that how you have the conversation? Do you say um, to your to your 10-year-old kid, you know, um, look at the prices in the ice cream shop and then look at the prices in the supermarket? Um, or do you institute like a pocket money situation? You can do it any way that works. Um, most people are uncomfortable with these conversations. Mm-hmm. They're uncomfortable bringing it up. Um, so any way you can get it started, you know, bring it up small you can ask them where dollars like if they're really little three four five eight ten years old like where where do you think the dollars come from Mm -hmm. how much do you think this costs how much you know how much do you think a lot of money is like you could just ask general questions and hear what they think what the beliefs are because that's going to start to give you an inclination of where we're meeting that child and then again As I said earlier, everything compounds and education is cumulative. So one conversation goes to the next one that goes to the next one that goes to the next one. And so understanding, right? I mean, kids come home all the time and they're like, whoa, so-and-so's parents are rich or so-and-so is rich. And so what does rich mean? Oh, well, their mom let us eat two ice creams. And so what? They let you eat two ice creams, but they ate two ice creams in the house and they bought them at Costco, right? So we lived in Manhattan for a really, really long time in New York City. And we, my, myself and my five kids lived in a small, I mean, Manhattan, as you know, is very expensive. And we lived in a 1,200 square foot apartment, not very big for a family of seven. And I remember we went out to see someone in the suburbs. And, with, you know, of course, the suburbs, they had a driveway, and five-bedroom house, and but it was like two and a half hours outside the city. Mm-hmm. And my kids on the way home were like, oh, my God, they are so rich. And I was like, oh, right. So kids have no idea what it costs to live in Manhattan. They have no idea what their father and I were willing to pay so we didn't have to commute to work every day so we could be home in six minutes from jobs so we could be in the apartment with them. All they saw was size, right? They saw our little apartment and then they saw this tremendous home in New Jersey that they were like, those people must be rich. Now, I can tell you because I knew the numbers our apartment was almost two and a half times the cost of what that home was. Wow, that's a huge difference. Huge difference. But if I had to commute from where that person lived every day to Manhattan, it would have been over two hours each way. Mm -hmm. And it would have been whatever, a couple hundred dollars in train fare or subway fare or car tolls, gas, parking. So again... The couple hundred dollars is not going to compensate for what I paid in the apartment, 
But my time, that four hours a day that I wouldn't have saw the kids was worth it to me to spend the money so I could be with them. Mm. And so did you did you tell that? Did you say that to them? Did you explain I, that? I did. Mm-hmm. I did. And, and they said, you know, again, my kids, again, they're being raised in a very financially ascent, like eccentric house. Um, and they said, well, are their jobs like your job? It, buy that house because we can each have our own room, right? They're kids. So they're coming at it from every angle. And I said, no, well, there's there's jobs here in New York City, but but there's not there. So again, I wouldn't be there to pick you up. I wouldn't be there when you have some play at school in the middle of the day. I can't leave work and come. And so they were like, okay, okay. And they were like, so no scooters. Because the big thing was they really wanted these like bikes and scooters and living in an apartment, we just didn't have the space. I actually did another podcast on this ages ago about this idea of, space and Manhattan and dollars and time value of money and you know just and that was really how I kept explaining it to the kids until we understood you know they understood. Mm -hmm. Okay so I guess it takes a little while for them to understand because obviously they've got different values to to what you want. (laughs) They only care about scooters whereas you care about them. Right and it's interesting now they, they I think they would tell you they've come full circle Mm-hmm. And they appre- now that they're older, they can appreciate that we were there through some of those early years. But when they now, now we live in Florida in like the boondocks. Um, of course, COVID changed everything because work went remote and whatnot. And they, they really can understand and mm-hmm. they make such good financial decisions. I mean, they're still teenagers, but I hear them like when their friends are buying stuff. Or when they're around like the book fair, like my youngest son, who's 12, he'll always come home from the book fair. And he's like, mom, those kids are spending money on trinkets they really don't need. And they don't understand that they're valueless trinkets. They should save the money and buy something bigger that's more valuable at the end of the, like the school year or something. And so I'm, I'm fortunate that they've gotten the lesson. That's great. And it's great that you're right, raising such financially aware kids. <laughs> trying trying <laughs> um so thank you so much for talking to me today um if our listeners want to find out more about you uh where can they find you so you can find me on linkedin at caravac sued um or you can find me on the money habitudes website that's www.moneyhabitudes.com and i'll give you the website um and you can feel free to email me if you click it i see all those emails send me a message or a note Great. Thank you. Yes. Um, we'll put those uh, links in the show notes so everyone can find them. Thank you. Wonderful. So much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It was great. Thank you. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.